All right, let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 to 15. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 to 15. Let's give our attentive listening uh, to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, uh, we, we thank you uh, that you are a God who speaks and who reveals himself. Um, and Lord, as we open up this word, and even though uh, it may not be the word we uh, typically turn to during the season, uh, Lord, we trust in your wisdom in landing us here today. And uh, we ask that you give us uh, the knowledge, the truth, but also the grace and mercy we need uh, to be transformed into uh, your son's likeness, uh, to know you more deeply, love you more deeply through your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is about the moral judgment of God in the end. Obviously, that's what this is about. There's this cosmic moral accounting that will come in the end. And there will be two kinds of people who, who meet this end. Those whose names are written in the book of life and those whose names are written in a different kind of book that death and Hades seem to claim. But before we go any further, uh, do you know what else is all about moral judgments? Christmas. Christmas is all about moral judgments, and not just in the biblical conception of it, but even in our secular, our cultural understanding and conception of Christmas. And what do I mean? Well, let's start with this. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Because some wrathful deity is coming to... No, Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you 
when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. Um, That's as judgmental as it gets. Watch every classic uh, Christmas film. And, And our family, we do the... Christmas movies marathon every every Christmas day. And watch The Grinch, watch The Elf, watch It's a Wonderful Life, all of my favorites. And it's usually about people on the nice list getting really persecuted and then later getting vindicated as the people on the naughty list are judged. And so after that climax, what happens? The the vindicated people gather around the Christmas tree or the fireplace or the piano and they sing and they celebrate Christmas. Without that preface of uh, moral judgment and accountability, you wouldn't have that resolution. Just even think about the sentiment behind spending Christmas with your loved ones and gifting each other presents. The symbolism of that. It's a glimpse of an existence, a setting where there are no enemies, no strife, only love, and and the the language of love, gift-giving. Maybe, yeah, we can have conflicts and strife on other days, but but let's not have it on Christmas Day, right? Because that's the day when we celebrate, that's the day when we gather with our loved ones, we sing. Even our court systems, um, they shut down on Christmas Day. No trials are held. No judgments are made. Not on Christmas Day. As if to really symbolize a day when only goodness and love prevail. And I think the only question we have to ask then, um, is, is any of this for real? <laughs> Can we truly, rationally, reasonably long for Yearn for a day when there will be nothing but goodness and love, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Will that dream ever become a reality? Will we ever get to sing joy to the world, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground, and actually reflect that in reality? And this passage gives us an answer, and the answer is yes. Because as as surely as Jesus Christ came the first time to bind Satan and give sinners a a way out of their sin and death, become free from the enemy's reign, so surely he will come again to punish Satan once and for all, resurrect his saints, and bring them home. So two things this passage gives us to reassure us of this. In this vision, we see the first, the, the final judgment of Satan, and then the final judgment of all those who follow him. Last week, we, uh, we looked at how in Christ's first coming, he bound up Satan so that all the nations, Gentile nations, are no longer deceived and they can be grafted in now to the spiritual Israel and be- become people of God and children of God and even offspring of Abraham. That's what we get to be. 
And this period of triumph where the gospel has this, takes this kind of effect is that figurative 1,000-year period, the millennium, between Christ's first coming, the first Christmas, and his second coming, the second advent of Christ. And we are living in that age now. We're living in the 1,000-year the period, the figurative 1,000 years, where the gospel is advancing and the church is worshiping and, and even in the midst of persecution, growing. So as often as we gather to, to worship here and we gather to study God's word, we pray with one another and pray for one another, we receive counsel from God's word to live more according to his will, um, more abundantly in his grace. As we mature in that direction, you have to realize all of that is because of Christmas. And all of that is an outworking of the first advent of Christ. Year-round, 365, what we're doing as a church is celebrating the power that Christ gave us at his first coming on Christmas Day. And that's where we draw the hope we need to continue to worship and fellowship together, resist sin and temptation, love our neighbors, share the good news with them and with our family until the end does come. And this is the part of the vision where we see that, the, the end of that figure 2,000-year period, which is the end of the world. And I do want to let you hear it again and let it sink in a bit more because we don't hear it enough. It doesn't, I don't think it quite sinks in as deeply as it ought to. So let's say it again, let's hear it again, let's allow it to sink in. The world is going to end. This world is going to end. But see, that's why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to us to show us that the end of the world is not somehow our end, but that through him we can enter his world, a world without end. Christmas, you see, is not about Jesus coming down to earth to give us hope for a life on earth that will be somehow made perfect. No, he did not come to give you your best life now. Christmas is instead about how Jesus Christ came down to bring his kingdom down to earth and create an entirely new heaven and a new earth. The message of Christmas is this Jesus, the Christ, the only Savior, the anointed, he is your way out of this world that is coming to an end. And therefore, you must put your trust in him you must worship him as your Lord and Savior and your King in order for you to enter into his kingdom. Basically, the world is going to end. He is your only hope. Now, before you think that's just kind of religious fantasy and fear-mongering, kind of just scaring people into heaven, right? Uh, consider then, just for a moment, what, what the scientists are saying to you. Uh, our best science says the same thing. The world is going to end. Um, except they give you three end time scenarios, not one. Uh, our best scientists tell us, and, and this is the, of course, uh, a non-religious, secular, naturalistic view of the world, that there are three ways that the whole universe will come to an end and everything ends in death and annihilation. There's a theory of what's called the big rip, 
which says, quote, Earth and humanity with it slowly decay into radiation, collapse in on itself, or be ripped apart as the universe's expansion ramps up. This would leave the universe full of single disconnected particles. The end. Then there's a theory of the big crunch, which says the universe will shrink and cause stars, planets, entire galaxies to collide into each other, and the universe would, for all intents and purposes, collapse in on itself. Everything will implode back into singularity. I'm not sure I understand all that lingo, but it doesn't sound all that fun to implode or for me and my loved ones to implode. I don't want that. And then there's the big freeze where the universe cools as it expands and gets too cold eventually to sustain any life. Everything gets frozen. Elsa wins. It's a frozen kingdom. Everything gets frozen. Nothing lives. Ultimately, everyone and everything comes to an end. That's the secular conception of the end of the world. And this is literally what you get if you believe what John Lennon talks about in Imagine. Imagine above us, no heaven, no God. Above us, only sky. If above us, only sky then ahead of us is the big rib, the big crunch, and the big freeze. And therefore, it's kind of reasonable then to follow from that, for secularism to say, this life is your only shot at happiness. Therefore, eat, drink, be merry, make money, spend money, please yourself, treat yourself, for tomorrow we die. And, by the way, there's no moral accountability after life either. Death ends all. No moral judgment that settles any score, that rewards the altruistic and the selfless and punishes the selfish and the abusive and the destructive. The universe doesn't care. In the end, particles, space dust. So be free to live according to your own morals, your own standards, catered by your culture and your, your time because everything ends in death. Live that way. Given, given that's how it all ends, live this way. Guys, if that's not fear-mongering, I don't know what is. But you see, the Bible gives us something that harmonizes better, I think, with what we intuitively know deep down inside and actually long for deep down inside, that we do live in a morally meaningful universe. And therefore, there must be moral accountability in the end. The people who got away with things won't get away. Deep down inside, for some reason, you long for that. And I think the only rational explanation for that is because you were created in the image of a moral God. And therefore, we know we live in a morally meaningful universe. A moral life is worth pursuing. And it does matter in the end whether we are found justified or unjustified, righteous or unrighteous. And so verse 11 in our passage tells us, above us is not only sky, above us there's a great white throne. And someone's seated on it. 
And it says in the rest of that verse, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So scripture says, in this creator of heaven and earth, in him resides that kingly authority, power to pronounce judgment upon all the earth. And as soon as he comes with his kingdom, with his new heaven and new earth, what does the old earth and heaven do? They flee away. They, the, the 90 billion year light year in diameter, space, time, continuum, they flee away. Trillions of stars and billions of galaxies, they disappear. This is a, a retelling or what's called recapitulation of what we actually heard in Revelation chapter 6, what we read about there, where mountains and islands are, are thrown out, greatest human cities are demolished, sun and moon are darkened, stars plunge to the earth, skies rolled up as a scroll. It's this cosmic undoing. It's a symbolic apocalyptic vision of the entirety of old creation, the one we're in right now, passing away. All of it coming to an end. And along with it, it's rulers symbolizing the dragon, the serpent, the beast, the false prophets, and all of their followers. All the, the, the old world is closing up shop, and all those who held that that destructive, abusive power in that world are getting arrested, taken to the judge. Uh, one commentator said previously in Revelation, what you've seen from chapters 17 to 19 especially, were God's judgments in history, because he brings partial judgment within history, but now what we're seeing at the end of the world is his judgment of history. Go from seeing his judgment in history to his judgment of history, when the, the true owner is here. And he's, he's going to take everything into account. And in chapter 21, we will see just what kind of a brand new world he ushers in. But first, there has to be a cosmic demolition that first takes place. And, and, and along with eradicating the, the bad rulers of the world, along with that, all of the reasons for bitterness, hatred, pain, and suffering, and mourning, and grief, Sin and death are no more. They're kept out of this new creation altogether. Because at the end of the world, the creator of the world is coming to reclaim and renew his beloved creation. The only one who has the right to do that and has the power to do that will come and do just that. So this is where we also see more than just the moral kind of meaningfulness of Christmas to seeing the moral urgency more urgency of it. The figurative 1,000-year period between Christ's first coming, the first Christmas, and his second coming, in a sense, the second Christmas, that is the only period in which you and I can acknowledge this creator, the one who's seated on the throne right now, and, and come to him and worship him, repent of our sins before him, and offer him our lives. And that is why Jesus came. To offer us this hope of salvation. This hope of knowing him. Hope of being made right with him. Before the end of the world comes. Word of the Father 
now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Now is the only time you can do that. Now is the only time you can go from darkness to light, condemned to forgiven, orphaned to being adopted. The time is now. To know this God who created space-time and yet entered in to draw near to you, who created matter and yet became matter to be close to you. God was born. The, The beginningless, uncreated one was born. And that is to show us that the, the biggest mark he leaves us in history is not one of condemnation or judgment, but that, but that he is a merciful Savior, full of grace and truth. So he became flesh to dwell among us. He came not to condemn the world, but to save it, save it from itself. He's humble enough to condescend to us from his holy throne, to be born in the manger where we see such a fragile and and vulnerable image, an image of us represented there to show us that he's loving enough and humble enough to draw near to us, to the likes of us. And then he lives the life where he fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament to, to show his people, I am the Messiah that God has been telling you about. I am him. And he proclaims the good news. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The end is near. And he shows through his death and his resurrection that he does have the power to overcome our sin and death. He shows us all of that. And the beginning of that is Christmas. Christmas is... God telling us he didn't just come to condemn the world or destroy the world and do away with the old, but he has come to reign and make his blessings continue to be known far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. He's here to redeem. And the time to put your trust in your Redeemer is now. And therefore, since since that's what Christmas is about, celebrating Christmas, really, it's nothing short of hoping for and longing for our salvation when he returns for the world's recreation. Celebrating Christmas means you have a hope that secures you even at the end of the world. That's what Christmas is about. Peace on earth, mercy, mild God and sinners reconciled. That's what Christmas is about. So as you, as you consider this, I hope, I hope you will take this personally. Uh, this message is for you. This, this vision is for you. It's for you and your family, your children, your, your spouse, your friends, your parents, your in-laws. When it says in verse 13 that Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them. That means every single person who's ever lived. They will be subject to God's just judgment. Because God is holy, and he is moral. And that's not just a 
a rational way of explaining why we find ourselves living in a moral universe, it is that. But more than that, and more simply, it means that you will literally stand before a judge at the end of the world. First in line is Satan. Uh, we see in verse 7, Satan being released from his prison, coming out to deceive the nations one last time. He gathers all of his followers for this kind of final battle. And their number is great, says, like the sand of the sea. And this may be referring to some great global persecution of Christians near the end. It could also mean that there's a great number of people throughout history who follow Satan, God's enemy, and work against the church or persecute the church while living in their own bondage to their temptations and idols. They will stand with him on that side, and throughout this millennium, they will continue to persecute the church. Either or both are plausible. Um, I lean more slightly to the first interpretation. I think uh, just before the end, there will be some form of great global persecution of the church. Um, it says here that in the meantime, the saints are gathered in what's called the beloved city, which we looked at in Revelation 11, does not refer to physical Jerusalem or a physical location of any kind, but it refers to the church of Christ. Those who belong in the beloved city are, are the truly baptized and included adopted members of the body of Christ. It's those who are saved by his grace. They're gathered, and they're and at the same time, they're surrounded by Satan and his followers. And it, it, it's as if a battle is about to ensue. They're about to go on the attack. But even before any of that happens, it says fire comes down. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them all. And along with them, um, Satan, death, Hades, all thrown into the lake of fire. And they will, be, they will be in that lake of fire, day and night, it says, forever and ever. Uh, real quick, the, the reference to Gog and Magog is not a reference to something in our socio-political context, uh, some geopolitical nation. Uh, it's not a reference to Russia. It's not a reference to the Soviet Union or Iraq. It's a reference to Ezekiel 38 to 39. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy that God will send his fire, consume his enemies, his people's enemies, deliver his people to safety. It's the same language that's found there. And it's important whenever you read Revelation, you interpret Revelation according to Scripture, not according to culture, and, and look at it through a biblical lens and not through just a sociopolitical lens. This is about God keeping his promise to his people who suffer persecution for the sake of his name, for the sake of his kingdom. And he will come to protect them, to deliver them, and make sure they are unharmed by the, the lake of fire. The fire will not burn them, and he will bring them into his kingdom. And once that's done, that climactic battle is over and judgment is over, you will find God and all his loved ones celebrating the second Christmas standing around the throne, standing around the throne of Christ, and there will be celebration. 
the, the question we have to ask at this point is, am I one of these people? And, and to really press this point further, uh, the vision continues to show us this, this parallel between the two books, or two kinds of books, um, starting in verse 12. And the, the simple distinction is one book is a book of judgment that judges according to what you have done. No more, no less. All of your thoughts, words, and deeds. The other is the book of life. So we can maybe imagine the one book perhaps having your name on it and next to your name, all of your deeds, all of your words, all of your thoughts. And if that makes you uncomfortable, maybe that's exactly why it's, it's in reference to the book of death. Uh, Death is probably what, what I would want if, if all of my thoughts, words, and deeds were to be put on display on this screen right now for you to see. That's the book of death. The other book, the book of life, is different. You would, you would see your name on it, but it would not be followed by all of your deeds, all of your thoughts, and all of your words, and all of your shame, all of your guilt, but if you recall from Revelation chapter 13, the book of life is also referred to as the book of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who was slain. Meaning, the names in that book, the book of life, are essentially those who are in the Lamb, who have put their trust in the Lamb, who was slain for the, for the sake of their sins. So then, it wouldn't be so much your name and your deeds that follow, but in the book of life, it would be your name and the phrase, in the Lamb. Your name and the phrase, in Christ. And that is who you are. That is what gives us the right to be called children of God. The right to take our name off of that list and be put on a different list. Not on the naughty list, but on God's adoption list. His genealogy. And if anyone's name, it says, is not found written in the book of life, he will follow suit and be thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And it is forever and ever. Now, whether the, the lake of fire is figurative or literal, it's hard to say for sure, given that this is apocalyptic, symbolic language. Some have said it's more likely figurative because Satan and his angels are spiritual beings. So it's hard to imagine how do you, how do you uh, burn something spiritual. We don't know for sure, but what we do know, what we do know is that hell is a place of anguish of both body and soul. And if you remember we, uh, what we looked at in Revelation 14, it speaks of the torment there that goes on forever and there being no rest, meaning there is a conscious, there's a conscious suffering in hell 
that is forever and ever. Hell is a place of conscious suffering and it is eternal. Uh, over the years, some of you have asked me this question uh, in our conversations that, you know, hey, Pastor John, you seem to have you know, some kind of answer for every question I ask you, but is there anything in the Bible that you find personally difficult to believe or troublesome or maybe even disagreeable? And I will point them to this every time. I, I still would. It's the doctrine of hell. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. If I were to come up with my own religion, I would not include this doctrine. But see, I didn't come up with this religion. And, and I'm not in this, and I'm sure many of you would say the same. I'm not in this. I'm not a Christian because I find it perfectly likable. But it's because I find it to be true. And the fact that there is something in the Bible that makes me wince, makes me deeply uncomfortable, I think that makes the case that this is not a man-made religion. If I were God, I would keep this incredibly scary, incredibly threatening incredibly dooming picture of hell out of the scriptures. But see, I'm not God. And I didn't write the book. And I'm not holy like God is. I don't, I don't see sin precisely the way God sees it. I'm not all-seeing. I'm not all-knowing. And I believe right, that if I, if I knew what God knew, I would probably want the same. But what I also know is if somehow everything in the Bible fits just neatly into my cultural sensitivities, then this is not a true religion. This is just a figment of my cultural imagination. I would have more reasons, not less, more reasons to doubt this if nothing in the scriptures ever bothered me. And I have more reasons to trust that this is a timeless truth because it would offend some people at some times. Some people at all times. That, that's got to be the nature of timeless truth. And therefore, the question is not, will everything in here conform to my cultural comfort zone? It's the other way around. Will I step out of my comfort zone and step into this timeless truth? Because he's God and I'm not. But rather than dealing with a lot of the unknowns, what is God's justification for this or that? I think we should operate with what we do know because what, we're, what we do know, we have a responsibility to respond to. And, and, and here's what we do know. There is a way out. There, there is a path of escape. There is a way out of hell. There is a way to have your name written in the book of life and not in the book of death. There's a reason to celebrate, therefore, the end of the world where we would find our vindicated, justified name written in the book of the Lamb. And that should be the reason why you celebrate Christmas. Because that's why Jesus came, to offer you that. To take your name off of that book of death. Have your name written in the book of life. For you to be 
detached from all of your thoughts, your words, and deeds, and completely attached, in fact, united as one with the Lamb. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we celebrate. Mild he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us, not second death, but second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. He was born to be our king, to deliver us and free us from the eternal judgment, the conscious torment that comes from that judgment forever. How? How did he do that? By letting that judgment fall on himself, on the cross. He says, this is the reason why the Son of Man came, to die for sinners, to die for the sheep, to lay his life down willingly for his people. And the scripture says, if you believe in that good news and you put your trust in Him, in the Lamb of God, you will be saved, you and your household. So very Merry Christmas. That's what Christmas is about. That's what He came to do. And if we celebrate Christmas apart from this, we're not celebrating it at all. Apart from His gift of eternal life, His resurrection life, you'll be missing the whole point of Christmas. It would be like celebrating your wedding because you get to eat a nice cake. Instead of celebrating the, the bride and groom standing in front of you. Guys, God, God helping you on a test score? God helping you on a job interview? Giving you a promotion? Healing and sickness? keeping your children safe. That's the cake. That's not the real thing. All of that will pass away when the world passes away. God is the gift. The one who was born for you in order to save you. The one who lived the perfect life to gift you that perfection who died to free you from your death, to, who rose to, to gift you his resurrection life, getting to be with him forever is the real gift. And if you're not celebrating that, you're not, you're not celebrating Christ at all. Christmas is about becoming one with, with Christ, even now, in the here and now. So that you, don't, you don't have to go a day without this assurance that even if the world were to end tonight, I will be with my Lord in his world without end. And we'll be gathered around the fireplace. We'll be singing. We'll be celebrating. Because the enemy is defeated. And we are vindicated. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this season, the remembrance of your Son, who came not to bring condemnation, but salvation to your people, to free us from the grip of Satan, sin, and shame, and guilt, and death, all by the, the work, the saving work of him, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to hear this again from our hearts. 
Help us to return to this gospel. Help us to live more boldly in this gospel with a life of worship and holiness, devotion to you, your kingdom. And Lord, embolden us to to share this gospel with our friends, our parents, our siblings, our neighbors. We know the world is coming to an end. The world knows it's coming to an end. But you have shown us a way out. May we not remain indifferent about that. But Lord, uh, as, as much as we love to celebrate, may we love also to, to share, share this good news with those around us. We ask all these things uh, in your son's merciful name. Amen.